Hi, this is Deirdre Sinnott, author of The Third Mrs. Galway, and we are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Attention. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at recovery from alcohol and substance use disorder, 12-step life at all, and all of the interesting people and history that create our community. This is episode 60. We celebrate a new book from an old friend, The Third Mrs. Galway. It's a first novel of historical fiction by Deirdre Sinnott. We first met in a Yahoo Worldwide group for free thinkers. And don't we just have so many friends in common? So this new book, I think it's right up your alley. Oh, yes, I do. About people involved and impacted by the Underground Railroad. It's called The Third Mrs. Galway. Anti-slavery agitation is rocking Utica in 1835 when a young bride discovers an enslaved family hiding in her shed, setting in motion the exhumation of long-buried family secrets. Haley's Comet is in the story, too. Now, what's it say here? Deirdre Sinat is the author, researcher, and activist of social change. She grew up in the region of Utica, New York, and graduated from Syracuse University. She facilitates the program Resisting the New Jim Crow at the National Abolition Hall of Fame and Museum. And only if you've been, uh, say, or know somebody who's an atheist agnostic in the scene for about a decade in the 12-step recovery program, you might know Deirdre's work behind the scenes. She's been an activist there, too. Oh, and she's been arrested several times, something she says with a smile, uh, involved in many uh, causes. She was the one-time list keeper for the worldwide directory of agnostic, atheist, humanist, AA groups in New York City and around the world. She's spoken about the history of the list. Uh, She was at the 2014 Santa Monica Gathering of Secular AA and again in Austin in 2016. July 6 is, was, depending on when you're listening, the release date of The Third Mrs. Galway. Let's talk with Deirdre. I'll have web links and contact information at the end. I've got new music from Les Shirley, a Montreal punk band called Fuck It, I'm In Love. That'll be later. Let's get to the interview. Deirdre, I am so happy to be talking to you again. So happy to have you on uh, the show. I've been a big fan of your writing for a long time. Uh, I'm very curious about uh, the background of your taking on this project. For the sake of our audience, if you're comfortable, uh, people would like to know a little bit about your background and struggles. Then we'll talk about how you found your way into your creative outlets and documentary making and writing and so on and so forth. And uh, then we'll get into that meeting with you and uh, Kaylee Jones in 2010. Is that how far back it goes? That's about right. And how this book came about. So uh, do you mind a little uh, what it was like, what happened, and where what you're up to today? 
Well, you know, it goes back to, uh, you know, really junior high school and maybe even before that, and um, that I wanted to be a writer. I remember I was being solicited to take typing lessons and I'm like basing what my vision of a writer is on Columbo where there's a guy dictating to his secretary and that's how he writes. And I said to the, to the teacher, I said, I don't need to learn how to type. I'm going to be a writer. And she's like, oh no, you need to learn how to type. You know, and this is certainly before I started drinking uh, at all. So I knew back in uh, junior high and high school that that's what I wanted to be. And I remember that um, we got a, an assignment where we were to pick a picture out of a magazine and write what happens right after this picture. And I picked a picture of a smiling woman, you know, she's just looking at the camera smiling. And I write this whole story about how seconds later she smashed over the head with something. And I showed my mother and she goes, can't you write anything nice? And that was, you know, me showing that the trauma that I suffered as a child, and that would be childhood sexual abuse, that it made my life feel like anything can happen at any second, which is basically true, but it's not your everyday, you know, occurrence. Um, and I feel that, that the fact that I couldn't look at that, my mother suggested, why don't you write a story that says that she gets a present? And I'm like, ah, no, you know, not me. I'm not going to write that. You know, it's interesting how that trauma manifests itself. When I decided that that woman was going to be hit over the head, that's it manifesting itself. When I wrote a story about this story was about a kid who was running away from home and immediately gets picked up by, uh, starts hitchhiking, gets picked up and ends up into drugs. And my mother is like, is this about me? She's looking at the, you know, because the kid has a fight with her mother. And I'm like, no, no, you know, of course it probably was. But it also is a manifestation of that same trauma that, you know, I'm leading and walking my way toward uh, the reason why you and I know each other. I'm not there yet. I haven't started really drinking until, you know, the end of high school, college. Uh, that's where I really start drinking and still writing. But I know now that my capacity was already diminishing in terms of my ability to keep at it. And what writing for this book and for other things since sobriety has been, it's keeping at it. You know, it's just understanding that it's a, a skill and a craft that you have to work on. And that if you don't work on it, you don't get better. You might think that everything that you write is a pearl of perfect wisdom, but really, it can get better. And with uh, the third Mrs. Galway, it's certainly, I mean, I wrote the book, but I also got lots of workshopping and feedback and solidarity and that kind of thing. And also listening to other people getting critiqued to learn how to write over the course of years. 
I, I remember um, joining Songwriters Association of Canada and you take your song, uh, your demo uh, that you think should be on uh, pop radio and the industry explains why you're not on radio, why this isn't uh, ready for prime time. And I got so much out of that. A lot of people left in disgust. What do they think they know? They're dinosaurs. You know, they, they just couldn't take the criticism. But I, I found it so terribly helpful. If you can be open to it and learn that some of it's good and some of it's not good. Yeah. Then you're, you're going to really benefit the other thing is, and I, I have obviously proved this just by my mere existence and the fact that at my age, 60, that I am a debut novelist, that it's not too late to start with the dream that you had in school and that, you know, even if it's junior high school and you didn't quite get there, it's not too late until you, you know, last breath to just make a start and to do things that satisfy you. And I'm so glad that I ended up on this path and it, and it certainly wasn't a given, definitely not, but I'm glad that I went there. When I first started reading, I thought, okay, like I always try to guess the ending. And uh, sometimes uh, I'm watching a movie with others and I'll try to guess what's going to happen and they don't appreciate it. <laughs> but just, just watch it. Uh, someone really thought about this and they're going to come up with a great, what happens next. But uh, I just, uh, I see it as a participation sport, but so I'm, I'm, I'm starting to read uh, the third Mrs. Galway and I'm thinking, okay, so the, the last political cycle, you started looking at, uh, uh, sort of racism coming back into the culture, rearing its ugly head. And you were writing a historical novel that is really going to be a reflection on today's environment. But this project and the research behind it goes back way further than, you know, uh, one presidential cycle, doesn't it? I decided my husband and I like to visit bookstores when we're traveling. That's one of the things we always do. And I had been feeling, I had been learning more and more about um, the Underground Railroad, about racism, just from being involved in grassroots politics. And so I was flipping every book open that had anything to do with the Underground Railroad in any bookstore, looking through for the name Utica, because I knew that Utica had to be involved somehow. And it wasn't just some romantic idea that I had, but it also knew that I'd never been taught about it. So one day I flip uh, open a really uh, interesting book um, and in the back talks about the Utica riot. And I'm like, ooh. So I buy that book and suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm searching on the internet and finding that there was this anti-abolition riot against the founding meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society. And this is like, I want to know more. I didn't start by reading histories of Utica because they weren't necessarily on my radar that I didn't know that that's one of the things I could look for. Um, I ended up at the Utica Public Library looking through 
newspaper articles about during that same period. And there happened to be this one newspaper, the Oneida Whig. And so I was looking through that around the date and I, at my, on microfilm and I'm looking and all of a sudden I gasp <gasps> like this. And somebody next wow. to me on the microfilm said, you found something, didn't you? And I'm like, yes, yes, here it is. This is the event. So I dove into that event trying to figure out all about it and thought, no, you know, I wish that people knew about this. So that's when I started doing, uh, speaking about it publicly. Chutzpah like I went to the United County uh, Historical Society, which is what it was called at the time, and, you know, asked to speak because I put all this stuff together. I wanted to get it out there. And of course, there were people there who had been, who came, who heard that someone was talking about the Underground Railroad and, and abolition. So they came and introduced themselves. And uh, those people are, I'm still working with some of those people uh, on doing research. So that was 2007. I was at the time working on a memoir because that's what you do. And that memoir is in a drawer, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) it just didn't quite work out. It didn't work out. And uh, so I gave it up uh, in 2015 and decided to talk to Kaylee Jones, who was my mentor at the time. Mm-hmm. I had lunch with her. I said, I pitched four different novels to her. And she's like, do that one. This one about the Underground Railroad. And I was like, okay, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And people in my writing workshop were quite skeptical that I could switch over to a historical novel. But for some reason, the difficulty of trying to get the narrator to work in the memoir because I was so unforgiving of poor drunken Deirdre. Yeah. You know, that I could never let it go. Somehow that just, the narrator just flowed right out and I had a really good uh, feel for it immediately. But then again, you have to write each sentence and make sure that you're not putting in something that's historically incorrect. So I would write a sentence and then I'd go to the, uh, to the dictionary or to other other books that I bought about the period to look up and see, okay, is this how this works? What kind of things were they using for lighting? What did they have running water? What was this? What was that? What was this? So it take, took a long time to get a first draft done. And then once you're going and it's just the characters and you know the technology that existed and you're, you know, you're within the correct bounds of uh, what tools they had to work with, then you can just go with the, the plot. Now, your characters are wonderful. And I, I wonder, like, uh, uh, if I'm pronouncing it right, if we, we never meet Price's father, but his influence on him was great. I mean, did you have to completely write who Price's father was as a character, even though you weren't going to use him at all? There weren't any flashbacks to when Price was a young boy or any of that sort of thing? Or, or, or do you just use it as a marker that, you know, he, he still feels like uh, he wants to win his father's approval and he's going to be influenced accordingly? Well, Llewellyn Anwell, who is Price's father, first of all, I wanted to get some Welsh people in there because the Welsh were very influential in terms of uh, anti-slavery in Oneida County. So that's why we got Llewellyn and Price Anwell. 
his character was the complete opposite of what it is now in the book. And it, I don't think it's giving it away to say that Llewellyn is a kind man in the book. Mm-hmm. And the, the initial character was a very mean man. And so it flipped it on its head. So I did not do a whole um, writing out of what the character's desires are, what their needs are, what they want, what they need, what they get anyway, or anything like that. It just, because I think, because I knew Price's character so well, and that's one that I did do more interior work on before I wrote it, because I knew him, I just knew that he, in a way, it's a, all of them are a little part of me, also needed approval, needed somebody to be proud of them and to say it. And so that that was part of what was driving him. And that out of that need came Llewellyn. And what's interesting about the names of a lot of people is that I have this list that was from the founding meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society. Yeah. And it's all the people who attended either on October 21st, 1835 or October 22nd after it was disrupted and went to Peterborough, New York. And so they collected names, I think at both places. I wanted to get names that were in use during that time. And Elimus is one of them. That character, Elimus, was an African-American man, Elimus P. Rogers, who was a student at the Oneida Institute, which is a school that was in Whitesboro, just one little hop and skip and jump away uh, from Utica. And a lot of the students, that was a place that was a manual labor school. At that school, the schoolmaster insisted when he came that they be able to accept both black and white men equally and that they would get equal degrees and everything. And really they were ahead of Oberlin. They were the first college to accept black and white on an equal basis. Speaking of uh, the sort of sequences in the story, which you sort of touched on a little bit, um, reading your book is sort of like a Quentin Tarantino movie where, you know, it starts in one place and then it goes back to, and you have to keep up. He's not saying, three years ago or 20 minutes from now, (laughs) like, like you have to sort of, whoa, whoa. And do do you write it chronologically and then go, how does, you know, we got to open with something dramatic. So let's start here and then we'll go back to there. How, how, and who's involved in that process besides you? What's the sort of whole editorial process from a chronological story to the way it's presented in a novel? The hardest thing was finding what goes first. And so that scene that is is the opening scene where Amari and Joe are walking along the Erie Canal, that was a little bit further back. um, And I had started initially with Helen going to Bag Square to shop on her first full day as a new bride in her home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of writers have a problem with where you start. Where does the story really begin? There is this inciting incident that is part of the 
the way we discuss literature. And it used to be if you were, you know, Anthony Trollope or somebody, you had the inciting incident happens, but it's way, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages in. You've mm-hmm. already, you're describing your characters, you're setting it up. But now there's no setup in, the, in, in modern literature in that same way. So you have to have the inciting incident happen right up front. I ended up putting it in the, the beginning in the order in which I would describe it to somebody mm-hmm. if I was doing an elevator pitch. Yeah. That was obviously the most important thing is the arrival of Amari and Joe. Yeah. Is the inciting incident. But also with having action in a number of different locations, um, I think I had overwritten some of the connections. You know, I would have a scene happen and then I want to get to the other character. So I have him watch it say, Mm-hmm. Like, no, I, I'm doing too much. I can just cut out all of that and have him be where he is. And people will assume either that he saw what he needed to see or didn't. Or it, So that was kind of, um, I, my philosophy was write it and then you can cut it. And there's certainly a lot that, there's certainly a lot that was cut. Uh, and that is better for the, usually better for the writing is to just, you know, go ahead and write it and, and just then you can let it go. Um, and then there's also the, the pacing when you have so many characters in different places and you like go back to Price after his initial uh, introduction, let's say, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, who is this guy again? Wait a minute. So you have to make sure that your audience is following you in in terms of where what just happened to this character and where they are in relation to the other characters uh, because otherwise I know that I've read books where I'm very confused. I seem to have a very short memory mm-hmm. when it comes to who's who. And so I always am putting little breadcrumbs in because I know that that happens. Um, you know, he'll reflect back, Oh, that girl, why am I even thinking about her? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You see that in some of the scenes, like, uh, you know, again, not to give anything away, but uh, there's a gunshot and the people in the room are responding to it. And then later in the next chapter, it starts with someone else outside the room hearing the gunshot. And and what what is that? And so it, it's uh, it's yeah, telling the same story from two different vantage points sometimes and then sort of bringing them together in it. For me, I had a moment of. I guess I would call it uh, white male privilege guilt or something. The the dramatic disconnect between the the struggles of uh, early African Americans and then the sort of white privilege struggles of matters of the heart. Oh, I'm with this person, but I love this person, right? Like like how petty that is, uh, you know, um, relative to life and death uh, and injustice and all of that sort of thing. Is that intentional? Did you mean to stir that up in me? Or uh, is that just uh, one reader's uh, reaction to it? I feel like what I put into the story is what's necessary for the story to be told and trying to leave 
leave that as enough for people to decide how they want to feel about it. But I want to try to tell a, a story as true as I can to the experiences of the characters. I mean, I haven't experienced all of these uh, challenges. I've experienced my own challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that they exist and I do know that they have weight. And so I want to put them in there. And uh, for a while, I think I had a problem of having too many angels on the page. You know, I had to make things a little bit, add, the, add that conflict that you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier between characters. I mean, I've been thinking about and, and uh, being involved in educating myself and when possible, educating anyone who will listen to me about the effects of racism, slavery, uh, and all of the fallout from the, the original sin of the founding of the United States, mm-hmm. um, both for the African-Americans who were brought here and for the indigenous people who were here, for the women, for, uh, you know, for everybody. Some, I think people will feel a bunch of different things about, about it. A lot of my friends, and I can see why, really liked the character of Augustine. They really liked him. And he's a yeah. friend. He's a dynamic character who does the right thing in the end. I'll just say that about him, right? Yeah. Right. But he, you know, like he has his own agenda and it does not necessarily involve really being sensitive to a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, And he's a funny guy and he has, uh, you know, a good sense of humor and that kind of thing. So I hope to to have, I got to say that I don't know what somebody in the 19th, early 19th century feels about anything. But I hope that I know what these characters feel about things. And it's it's really kind of different. Even if you're reading... uh, accounts by people from that period still how much are they actually telling of how they felt or it's you know it's very sticky for the most part and of course there are some real people in there um who i who are not the the main characters who are doing all the emoting but still there are real people in there so i tried my best to figure out what these characters given the sets of problems and strengths that I gave them would feel. But you look at a character like Maggie, who is just a wonderful character, and Kaylee immediately zeroed in on her and she goes, oh, she's a really great character. And I hadn't planned much for her at the Mm -hmm. beginning. I didn't know the name of this book at the beginning. It's not like I have the third Mrs. Galway in my mind. When I started writing the book, I was calling it The Society. Right to have a wider view of what what was going on at that time and because the the protests against the abolition conference in in Utica had been so dramatic I felt like it was a bigger society that I wanted to look at okay so that was my beginning and then I'm up here in this room where you happen to see me but your your listeners won't looking through a, a period I want to say Atlas, let me think what it is, Almanac. I'm up here in this room looking through a period Almanac, and it talks about Halley's Comet. 
Right. And it's coming through in October of 1835 and people are spotting it. And then I see in the newspaper, oh, they spotted Haley's Comet. Da-da. So I run down and tell my husband, Haley's Comet was going through. And he goes, that's amazing. We should call the book The Comet because comets bring change. And certainly I have characters who are just coming in and everything changes because of these characters. So it's, it's The Comet. So now I'm writing The Comet. Um, and... Uh, that title went over like a lead balloon with some people. <laughs> and so I had to figure out what else to call it. But the action of the book ended up being the deciding factor for the name. And so we got to the third Mrs. Galway. So anyway, back to Maggie. So Maggie is there um, and Kaylee's looking at this character and going, wow, she really stands out. You should do something more. She goes, often when you're writing a book, there'll be a character who just leaps off the page and you got to pay attention to that. And so uh, that was excellent, more excellent advice from her. And so that's why I really stuck with it. And for some reason, um, a lot of what Maggie's thoughts and uh, resentments, she goes through every single job she does in the house. And there's probably about a dozen more jobs that I didn't outline there. Yeah. And saying, if I have to do one more thing, well, I'm going to, you know, and so it was just uh, fortuitous. And then a friend of mine asked me, did you base this character on me? And I'm like, no, I did not. And then I realized, yeah, I did. <laughs> and she's like, I knew it. So anyway, she's she's happy that, that Maggie is a, a little piece of her. Oh, that's so nice. And how do you keep a secret for so long? So uh, one of the interesting plot twists in the uh, book um, isn't revealed until much later. Was all of that right there at the beginning when you put pen to paper? Or uh, did some of the uh, twists and turns uh, just come, you know, halfway through the process? Um, I knew part of where I was going, yeah, but not all of it. And it, a lot of it was a result of research. So I was reading a book about New York state and slavery. And there was this fact there. And I, I said, Oh, Oh, this is important. This, yeah, can really this action it. that people are doing. It's, it's important. And uh, this is going to, this makes this character make sense. And then, of course, you go back and you sprinkle in a few things ahead of time. Now, after you've read it, you know the that particular twist. If you were to read again, you would see, oh, there's a little bit of a hint here. Mm -hmm. yeah. this, oh, there's a person thinking about something and she diverts her brain to another thing because she doesn't want to think about that thing. You know, kind of uh, what we all do when we're, we're faced with something that we don't care to think about, we say, ooh, can't think about that. And, and so you'll you go back and you can put in those little um, hints and breadcrumbs, but you have to do it with a light hand. And I had people finding out this particular twist a little bit even later in the book, but it needed to come out so that then people can understand the actions of some of the characters. Right, yeah, yeah, you can see how they're informed, how their actions are informed by their experience. 
it was like surgery, just sort of putting everything together and bringing everything together over really very few number of days, uh, which is uh, really remarkable to get that much action. And but but I guess our lives can be like that, right? Like nine uh, eleven was a lot of drama in just a few days. Politics or personal crises and that sort of thing is a a, a lot to say in just a few days. It's a it's realistic in a lot of ways. Weirdly, other stories that I've written that have not, you know, been published or anything or other like screenplays that I've done, I seem to really like this sort of tight box of time and have a hard time lengthening it out into years. I mean, some some books cover a decade or, and, and me, I'm like, you know, five days, <laughs> which is, you know, I remember I said to Keely, how do you jump in time? I've been like following these people so closely and, and now I need a little jump. She goes, part two. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. Part two, jump in time. Thank you. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, I was waiting for a part three, but maybe that's still to be written. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a book I will read again. And it's like a great song. You don't want to hear a great song once, right? Uh, because you really pick up on the nuances. First, how does the song make you feel? And then, you know, did they use a bridge or just first chorus, first chorus? I want to go back and see how they constructed it. And, you know, it's like the making of movies I like as much as the movies, right? You know, the sort of story about the story and, and this story has a lot of, you know, the, and you can even see that in some of the press stuff about like the tremendous amount of research. You could probably tell me more about Canada's role in the Underground Railroad because of your research than, than I already know. Can you, and, and you hint about them heading off to Canada. Can you talk about what you found out? Well, what's interesting is that I'm still following the Utica string here. And that leads in so many directions to Canada. And uh, there's been, in New York State anyway, there's been a, an awakening of the, there's always been a group of people who've been following the Underground Railroad, but suddenly there's much more flowering of it. Uh, for instance, there's a beautiful, beautiful little museum uh, in Niagara Falls, New York, that is right at the terminus of the Amtrak for Niagara Falls, New York, and then goes on into Canada. And it has all of this history of things that they have documented very well uh, about how people got to Canada in spite of the, the falls uh, mm -hmm. and over the certain walking bridge and this and that. So uh, there's, um, a couple of people who I have been following for a nonfiction book who were in Utica and who uh, were from Virginia. Somebody from Virginia found them in Utica, how I don't know, and tried to arrest them and bring them back down south and it didn't work out. Um, and I know that they went up through Mexico, New York, and then up to Oswego and took that route up to Canada. 
And I even heard uh, in a newspaper account that the guy who helped them in Mexico, he said, I hear often from Harry and George and they're doing well. And I still have to make that leap and try to find them in Canada because there was these small communities that developed in different places uh, in Canada at the time. And of course the, you know, you want it to be the, the, the soft ending to a long, hard road, but there was the same sort of racism in Canada. Yes, there sure was. Yeah. Was in the United States, but people were not enslaved and the, slavers had no right to go into Canada and kidnap people from there, though they did occasionally do that. Or they ran right up to the border and, you know, did as much as they humanly could to try to get their, what they considered their property back. It is a dramatic story. And um, there is a, a woman who does these tours, Niagara Heritage Tours. I'm not sure of the name. I could find it out and get it to uh, but anyway, you know, part of it is looking at the Black community in Canada and also coming into the United States and doing some of the Underground Railroad bus trips, you know, because there is a now a corridor where there's a lot of still existent buildings and, and, and little museums and stuff along that Erie Canal corridor. Like safe houses that people used to travel to places that had different roles yeah like i've been involved with uh a survey of oneida county's underground railroad spots and oneida county uh encompasses utica rome and a couple of other places and we've identified like 75 79 places where the underground railroad was or where there's a significant black community from which you can tell that that community has been deeply involved in helping. And then there's some evidence that you can find in newspapers. I mean, 79 places that we have found hard evidence about. So that is, you know, a significant thing in terms of just trying to uncover these, these lives. Um, I, got very involved in, in just trying to get as much information as I can about a number of individuals who lived on this very short street in Utica, a post street. And, yeah. it, and it's like, there were families that were there for decades. They owned a house, uh, Peter Freeman's family owned a house on post street. And it just went on all the way from I think it was like he started in the 1830s and the house itself existed right up until 1904 mm -hmm. in that spot and other people who came and went on post street. And so post street is a little bit different than I characterized it in the book. I've found out that it's more of a multinational neighborhood than I described, mm -hmm. um, but it was significant, even though it's only one block. Yeah. So like a, a lot of different Europeans uh, or is it more broad? Would there be uh, Asian uh, settlers there? Or? The, the, the period that I looked at was from 
the first Utica directory, which I believe was 1819 or something like that, up through 1865. Mm-hmm. And um, Post Street, you know, started out in a multinational way. It was named after John Post, who had a, according to legend, like the dirtiest rooming house in the, in the world. And he was doing a lot of trading with uh, the indigenous nations in the area. And he'd go to Albany and get goods and bring them back to, to Utica and trade with the indigenous nations for furs. Um, and it was a pine forest. And then they cut down the pines and people were making money by digging up the, the, the trunks all the way down and getting resin filled sticks, which were good for kindling and mm-hmm. making a, a life out of that and then putting up little houses on, on Post Street. Yeah. Um, and so it was black and white and indigenous. In the 1840s, a whole number of Jewish immigrants came in from Poland and there must have been some programs going on there that caused them to flee because all of a sudden there's this whole influx of uh, families and people who were from Poland um, and they mostly worked as peddlers. And they didn't stay on Post Street as long because they seemed to be able to more easily buy land, buy a house elsewhere. But that was one of the places that they landed and were there. And some of them bought rooming houses and ran those and you know it was an interesting mix and then eventually people were moving all over the place and and some people having very very interesting lives it's i'm glad that it made it into the book because it was so significant and uh in terms of the black community too a little bit about publishing covid uh you've had some experience with self-publishing and uh um, how, how do you launch a book in a pandemic and what, what are the challenges or opportunities if you can take a positive spin on it, Ben, in terms of going forward with, with this and uh, how did they pick the release date and all that sort of stuff? I had really, really wanted this book to come out in 2020. Boy, I was really hoping for it. <laughs> and when I, found out that the publisher Akashic uh, has a sub-publisher, not sub-publisher, Akashic has an imprint called Kaylee Jones Books. And she is the one who's developing these properties, but she doesn't control the timing. They have a certain, it's a small indie publisher and they're really cool. They have a lot of cool books. Uh, including um, a whole noir series. Anyway, they're very interesting to look at. Um, So they have limited number of books that they can release in any one year. And for Kaylee Jones books, there's two per year. And so you get the early time or you get the summertime. I found out that I was going to be July, 2021. And I'm like, damn, oh my God. Well, at least I'm going to still be 60. Thank you. Okay. And I clung onto that. Uh, A friend of mine who wrote a really wonderful book called The Schrodinger Girl. Her book came out in, uh, it had to be March of 2020. And then the whole 
thing closed down. Yeah, exactly. The, people were reading more books during COVID, but I know I didn't. I mean, I was doing research, but I still couldn't like wrap my head around fiction. And I know that the publisher, you know, was really struggling because they just were not, people were not buying the same sort of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I end up being very grateful that my wish things on the schedule that I think should, should be on that my, my rush to get it out because I just want people to know so much about the history. Um, and I want people to get the book, um, that that didn't work out and that I had to accept it because it was, you know, among those things that I could not change. You know, I'm glad that it was that. So, so a number of authors did have to go during the, during the pandemic time. And, um, they did a lot of online events and um for some i think it was okay to do that because they're kind of shy and retiring anyway but if you're like me and you want to get out there and talk to people and meet and hear what they have to say and just you know be out there um it would have been very frustrating so i have been setting up i was at um juneteenth celebration in Utica. Yeah weekends ago and met a whole bunch of great people and sold a bunch of books and got out a lot of information. Uh, I'm going to the farmer's market. You know, they're very excited. They want to sell books there. So um, I'm glad that, uh, that I'm able to get out there. We all have learned whether we think we know what the future is going to be that we don't. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, the thunderbolt can come out of anywhere when you don't know where it's going to come. So I'm just trying to make the most of what I can do to be able to do that. And I especially want to make sure that when it comes to the folks in Utica, that no stone be left unturned in terms of trying to get people to hear about the history that's in the book and to, um, you know, illuminate some aspect of the African-American experience in the, in that area. There is people who say that there were no African-Americans in Utica until the great migration, but they're wrong. Mm -hmm. There was was an enslaved population in Utica. Right. People who were not enslaved born free and then they were freedom seekers they were all there uh, and they, their stories have been buried and uncovering them is part of the thing that I have found so much joy and so much interest in. So what was the date those where you approved the final edit? I'm looking up at a copy of the check that I have up on (laughs) really big. So that check did not come to me until the, until the contract was signed. Okay. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So the contract was not signed until the book was approved by the publisher. And that was after making changes that the publisher asked me for. Okay. Good changes, smart changes. Mm-hmm. So that was 
May 2019. Now, how influenced were you by the politics of the day, at, like m- moving the goalposts, moving the storyline a little bit, trying to sort of speak to what's going on in America today? Both very and not at all. <laughs> right. I mean, I wanted to write about a multinational group of people. Yeah. And that was the only way to tell the story. I, I find it hard to, I, I don't know how, what I would write if it wasn't multinational group mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything that you write about upstate New York and in, in history, and I'm thinking about writing something that's set during the revolution, you got all the indigenous nations there from, from yeah. the, 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 uh, the six nations. And so you have to understand and, and do your best at representing them. And if you don't put them in, that's committing the same kind of erasure of history that, that right. has been happening. So yes, yes and no. Part of this reason this book came out was because I had written a couple of screenplays that had multinational characters and was told by people who I like that they couldn't be sold because there's too many black characters. Yeah. Wow. And that's uh, like, wow. Yeah. You know, one of them said, why don't you write a novel? And it's like, okay, yeah. Okay. I can see that that's, and I think things have slightly changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the temperature has changed. Yeah. Right. Um, but I remember talking to a, a on, via Facebook to a, an African-American playwright and I had mentioned that. And so she sent me an IM. And so I explained to her what I was told and she's like, oh, yeah, that sounds exactly familiar. And so um, certainly it is um, an important time for, for us to be discussing these issues and they're important discussions. And, uh, you know, I might not, you know, I, I, these are important discussions to have. I want to have them. I think we all want to have them so that maybe we can move, move up trying to get true, true equality among people as a baseline mm-hmm. so that we can get there because we're not there yet here in the United States for sure. Uh, or anywhere. I mean, in some cases we sh- see signs of uh nationalist you know backsliding but you know it's uh, uh all the more reason to roll up our sleeves and take a stand right so th- there was a story you wanted to tell would you tell listeners before they read it um anything they should keep in mind or some sort of perspective they should bring to this sort of set their mind to taking on the third Mrs. Galway? First of all, there should be a warning on the, on the book because everybody tells me that they can't put it down once they start it. So there should be a little warning sticker on there that says, you won't be able to put this down. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that um, I just, I wanted to tell a good story and I wanted to tell a ripping yarn. And I, um, I know that I'm not uh, necessarily breaking new ground in terms of literature Mm -hmm. that I wanted to have an engaging story. And so if I fail at that, then, you know, then that would be a bummer. 
I don't know. I think you could just pick the book up and, and start reading it and get lost in this interesting period that from where, from whence there's no pictures, there's paintings, there's descriptions, there's drawings. Yeah. You're not going to see any photos, right? Cause they don't yeah. even, they're not even invented until like the 1840s with the, with the tintypes and all that. In terms of antebellum, it's this sort of early part that we don't look at as much. Um, and so, it may, and it's politically interesting. And there's a whole lot that I didn't get in there that's happening, like the Indian Removal Act yeah. and all of the wars against the indigenous people. It's like, that's not in there, but you have to serve the story. Anyway, I don't know if I've answered your question. No, but. no, no. You, thank you. You, you have. Um... You remind me of something uh, Ernie Kurtz would always say, and his PhD was Harvard in in history, and especially in American history, right? That's, uh, I think, specifically um, his uh, book about uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, was about its its place in American history and uh, sort of uh, the context of where this movement couldn't have happened at any other time or any other place, right? And that was his sort of PhD thesis. But but he would always say, who cares if someone else has already written about the subject? You're going to bring your own uh, self into it, your own perspective. Like I would often go, oh, I was thinking about writing about this, but someone else has already done it. And he goes, no, 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 no. But, but you're right, right? No, there's nothing new under the sun but there's still a new way to say it, right? The stories that we tell each other are the way that we learn how to behave. And this is partly, this is part of what I think that AA does for people. And it did it for me, for sure. It helped me to re-socialize myself so that I wasn't the hot mess that I was back in 1996. Yeah. And found ways to interact with people that were that were different that were you know more caring and um just more humane for and humane to myself yeah um and so i think that that whole thing once again it's like it felt like it was too late for me but it wasn't too late for me and I think that's true along the board and, and um, people's results are different, of course, but if I'm not reaching for something, then I'm not going to get anything. <laughs> now you still got work to do. Like you're talking to people like someone listening to this podcast right now, and there's more sort of opening work to do with the book, but what, about your regular life, are you really looking forward to sort of getting back to? Is there anything that you've had to put on hold that you miss? My situation was very, it was a double situation in that for the last three years, my husband and I were taking care of his mother, who's 95. And so we moved in with her. We kept our apartment in New York, but moved in with her and we didn't know it was going to be three years. Yeah. It had a stroke and needed help. And so we went and helped her. And so our lives changed very rapidly into a much more circumspect life. And then came COVID 
and all of a sudden it's like <laughs> squeezed down. I couldn't like just hop in the car and go to the grocery store because, you know, just to get out of the house. Um, so we're still, uh, and his mother died in March of this year. Yeah. Not of COVID, but just of mm-hmm. being 95 and kind of deciding that she was done. Um, and we gave her a at-home non-medical experience mm-hmm. at the end of her life. And, um, and that was very profound to do. And so there's a whole lot of things. I mean, I feel like I'm ready to drive all over New York state and go here, go there. Um, there happens to be a much higher vaccination rate here uh, in New York than in other places. And I understand Canada has been having problems getting the vaccine. Um, so I feel lucky about that too. So things are opening up when, and people are getting out. We've gone to restaurants. Yeah. You know, we went to a concert where we all had to have a thing that said that we were vaccinated and we mm-hmm. all wore masks. And, but it was a live concert with live musicians playing. Haven't got that yet, but most of my friends are in the U.S., and so I hear about what the future looks like. And I don't know. I, I started to say that I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. It could be that we have this, like, little spring and summer, and then when November comes around, it might be bad again. I'm controlling what I can control. And that is just trying to enjoy the experience of fulfilling a lifelong dream and knowing that it's that that it can be done, that I don't need to get permission to do it, that it's just to go ahead and do it. That's how I did the films. That's how I did it. I've learned finally, I think, learned the lesson that, you know, the person who is holding me back a lot is me. And so if I could just get out of my own way, I'd be uh, yeah, where I am. I suppose for people who know you, who can read through your reserve, you're very excited. <laughs> <laughs> you have to really dig deep <laughs> to get that excitement. Yeah, that's, that's Virgo excitement. <laughs> <laughs> wild and crazy oh man this this has been great so um yeah other than that where are you hanging out i'm trying to get myself into as many places i've i've been to a book festival out in pennsylvania i'm going to one in ithaca new york i'm going to be at the farmer's market you know so i'm just trying to because i feel joe i have just this one chance and i don't blow it and i don't want to self-sabotage you know, and I don't want to do all the things that I might have done when I was still using. I'm trying to make the most of it. And somehow by having a separate thing, a book, mm-hmm. that's not me, I can advocate for the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier than if it's like uh, all about Deirdre, right? Yeah. 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 yeah definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I like that. Listen. Good to talk to you. Fantastic. Time well spent. Thank you. All right. Soon. Okay. Talk soon. Uh, yeah. Bye. In Utica, New York, July 8th is, was uh, the official launch. And it'll be 
a limited seating in-person event and a Zoom event. This is 6.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for the third Mrs. Galway. Uh, go to deirdresanat.com for more details. D-E-I-R-D-R-E-S-I-N-N-O-T-T dot com for details. And we always go out with a little bit of music. From Montreal, Les Shirley is a band born of uh, 2000s pop and punk. Their punk rock teenage years shaped the women they are today. This is a new song called Fuck It, I'm In Love. Rebellion Dogs Publishing dot com for news and notes.